Vision with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Welcome to the latest episode of the Robots Podcast. Today, we'll take a look behind the scenes of the 100-100 Computer Vision Tracking Challenge, a challenge that a group of researchers at the University of Washington have imposed upon themselves to understand 100% of the pixels in an image, 100% of the time in video footage. Such understanding would allow robots to assist humans more naturally in environments like a home kitchen, a wet lab or in disaster response. Our interviewer Audro spoke to Professor Dieter Fox from the Department of Computer Science and Engineering about how they plan to accomplish this feat and about the challenges they've encountered along the way. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Dieter Fox. I'm a professor of computer science at the University of Washington in Seattle in the U.S. Can you tell me a bit about your research? Um, my research is in robotics and artificial intelligence, where the goal is to, especially um, in the area of what we call robotic perception, where we try to extract useful information from sensor data that we collect, for example, on a robot, for example, with a camera or things like that. And why is this your interest? Well, my goal ultimately is really to um, enable robots to, for example, interact with people in a, in a natural way. So, for instance, if you want to have a robot in your home and it should help you cooking something in the kitchen, then you want to be able to talk to the robot, you want to tell the robot what it should do. Um, the robot should be able to, for example, understand what you're trying to cook It should be able to realize when it should help you, how it can help you. And for these kind of tasks, it's just very important for the robot to kind of understand what's going on around it. Mm -hmm. And so you use vision as the dominant sensing modality for this? Yes, that's one of the main sensors. And specifically, um, these what we call depth cameras, which are cameras that do not only provide you um, color information at, let's say, a camera pixel level, but they also tell you how far individual pixels are away in the world, which gives you information about the shape of objects, how far objects are away, and things like that. Okay, and how do they work? Some of the, some the of different the kind of t techniques for how they do this, but um, uh, they were developed mainly the first real system that came out um, commercially was the Microsoft Kinect Xbox sensor mm -hmm. and the idea was that with these cameras they wanted to track people while they were playing video games um, and the main technique is kind of for one type of sensor it is based on a stereo system idea where just like we humans where we use the differences in the images that we perceive with the left and right eye we can extract information about how far things are away in the world. And that is one of the principles um, on which uh, the one line of work of these cameras is based. There's another kind of camera that actually sends out a pulse of light and measures the distance until the time until the light comes back, and from that estimates then the distance to obstacles. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell me a bit about the 100-100 tracking challenge? Yeah, the 100-100 tracking challenge. The idea of that is really: can we, for example, uh, collect a video of? Um, person doing certain things in the world, like cooking in a kitchen, or someone, for example, doing um, performing a certain protocol in a biology wet lab, like 
operating with test tubes and pipettes to do certain steps of a protocol. And the idea would be, can we really, for every pixel in every video frame, can we say what is going on in that pixel? Which means, is, does that pixel belong to the hand of the person? Is it a certain pipette the person is holding? We want to also understand um, what is the higher level goal of the person, which step of a recipe, for example, are they currently performing. So the, the goal ultimately would be to understand 100% of the pixels with 100% accuracy. Mm-hmm. And is this affiliate? Who is affiliated in this challenge? It's, it's not, um, let's say, an official challenge. It's just a challenge that we pose ourselves for our research direction in, in my lab. And that also came out of um, a collaboration we have with Intel. So we have an Intel Science and Technology Center at the University of Washington. And there, the, uh, this came out of the goal of really tracking activities in a wet lab environment so that, on the one hand side, a robot could help a person to perform protocols. Mm-hmm. How did you choose the environment of a wet lab? The wet lab is for us was just a very nice uh, test setting or also a good example for what we call, what you might call a task space, which is an environment, typically let's say an indoor environment, where people perform certain tests, uh, certain types of tasks or protocols. So you could imagine in a wet lab, you're doing certain steps to perform um, a kind of test experiment with test tubes, pipettes, and, and different materials. Uh, another example would be, for example, at home when you're cooking something, It's very similar because you have ingredients, you have certain steps you need to do in the recipe, you follow those. Um, So the idea is that the environment is not totally open-ended, but it's kind of serving a certain task, right? The kind of objects you're interacting with is kind of limited, let's say, right? In a kitchen, it's the typical utensils we are using, Mm -hmm. the same holds true for a wet lab. And that kind of structure... I think, on the one hand side, would help us to constrain the task and thereby make it somewhat at least feasible to solve it, actually. Mm-hmm. I see. So these are just possible situations that you could apply this. Exactly. You could, you could also imagine that um, you're working at home at a workbench. Yes. And they're um, desirable to be, it's desirable to be indoored, indoors because of controlling lighting and this kind of thing? Or does it simplify the problem in different ways? At this point, I feel like most of these settings are more happening indoors, but um, ultimately um, we could also go outdoors, for example, a a much more, uh, a less constrained setting would be, for example, disaster response, helping people in disaster response, where you have similar problems where you um, kind of want to perform certain steps, and if a robot should help a human to achieve that, it needs to know what the person is doing. Right now, you're right, also for practical purposes, the advantage of indoor setting is that we can place cameras at certain locations. We can use these depth cameras, which work much better indoors than outdoors, because outdoors, um, the sunlight kind of disturbs the sensing. Mm -hmm. And so what are some methods, uh, or what are some ways to approach this 100-100 tracking challenge? So when you, uh, for example, put this into context, a lot of the work that's going on in the computer vision community then um, there's a lot of really nice work on tracking objects. And there the idea is often that you would like to track an object by putting a bounding box in an image around the object. Okay, so... Um, or another area is you want to track... So it's basically circling it. Yeah, you're just circling, and then you say somewhere there is, for example, a human hand or the, mm-hmm. the head of the person. But I think ultimately for a robot, that is not going to be enough because... 
we live in this 3D physical world and we would like the robot to operate next to the person. So it's not enough to say somewhere over there is a hand of a person, but we need to know where exactly are, for example, the fingers of the person, how is the person holding an object, how are they moving the object. So what we are using a lot is um, what we call model-based tracking, where we actually have a full 3D shape model of, for instance, a person or of objects they are interacting with, and we really try to track exactly how this shape changes over time. And for that, we're using a lot of advanced, let's say, matching techniques that people developed over the last years, also um, relying a lot on uh, GPU processing power because a lot of this kind of parallel processing that we're doing there on the mm -hmm. pixel level. Um, and more recently, also to make these techniques more robust, um, we're putting in a lot of machine learning um, technology as well, and particularly in that domain, deep learning is, of course, one of the, the main topics these days. Mm -hmm. And so you've segmented this challenge into modeling, tracking, and detecting. Can you first talk a bit about so you're mentioning modeling. Can you go into depth? Yeah. In so, so the general notion is, um, if you would like to really track accurately what's going on in a scene, first of all, what you would like to have is 3D models of the scene itself and of the people. The next level would be once you have a 3D model, how do you track that in real time? As for example, the person is moving, and how can you detect that? And on the modeling side, um, there's been a lot of progress over the last years. How we can, for example, use these depth cameras and move them through an environment and then build very accurate 3D models of an indoor environment. And people are using a lot of these uh, depth cameras, different versions of them. But for instance, when you look at uh, the Microsoft HoloLens system, it's also relying on similar technology in order to track the location of these glasses. Um, and then beyond modeling, for example, uh, rigid environments, we've also done research recently together with postdoc Richard Newcomb um, and my collaborator Steve Seitz at UW, uh, where the idea is we want to build 3D models of people with such a camera. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea there is really that um, you can move the camera around the person, and even if the person is moving while you're building the model of the person, we can still, using um, a very efficient matching techniques, we can build a consistent model of the person. Okay. And so say using like Connect Fusion, what, what is the result if the person moves? Uh, if you just use Connect Fusion to build a model of a person, if the person was, was able to not move at all, then you would get a good model of the person. But the problem is people just tend to move slightly, no matter what you do. Uh, or if you want to build models of little kids, they tend to move even more. Mm -hmm. So you would get an extremely blurry model of a person because what Connect Fusion does is it would just kind of average across all the motion that you're doing, and that just wouldn't work well. Mm -hmm. So that is why what we need to do is uh, we have to go beyond just building, let's say, a rigid model of a person, but at the same time we need to estimate how the shape of that person changes while we're building that model. Yes. And that is a pretty complicated um, estimation problem, but uh, Richard came up with a really nice technique where the idea is we estimate what we call a three-dimensional warp field that tells us how the three-dimensional space around the person needs to be warped in order to model the motion of the person. Mm -hmm. And so this compensates as they move, and it makes it so that it doesn't distort the model that's coming together by various scans? Exactly. So the idea then is, as we're estimating the motion of the person, we can also at the same time use that motion in order to update the model of the person and do this consistently. So you fill in patches that you couldn't see initially? Exactly, yes. 
-hmm. we can build a model that becomes more and more complete then, yes. Now, so I've seen some videos uh, of this research, and it often strikes me that the the person being modeled has a funny expression on their face in the model. Do you... It's just it's uh, maybe an maybe an averaging of or it, yeah. That's can you a talk a bit about question. this? I don't even know. I think that could be for some of the videos. There are of course some limitations to this kind of work. So for instance, what because the model has to do let's say some kind of smoothing in order to compensate or realize whether some motion is due to the camera moving around or due to the motion the person moving around. And um, in order to do this kind of smoothing, um, we need to make an assumption, for instance, that points that are nearby each other, that they move in the same way. Now, if, for example, the problem is if you build a model of a human face and initially the mouth is closed, then the model would assume that, for example, the two lips that are close to each other, that they don't move apart because they should move in a similar way. Now, if you suddenly open your mouth, then suddenly you're kind of ripping apart that assumption, right? And the model might become inconsistent. So that is, for example, something for future work where we really want to look into those details more. Mm-hmm. Now, so other projects that you've had working or you've worked on within the space of modeling, I've seen a video where a robot has held up an object and begun modeling that. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the notion of that was... Um, If you, for example, you have a robot in your home or a robot would like to learn more about its environment, and we thought one idea, of course, or one advantage of a robot is that the robot can actually actively explore its environment. So why not make it possible for the robot to see a new object and say, oh, a 3D model of that object might be useful in the future, so the robot should be able to pick up the object and move it in front of its camera. I think similar to maybe a human might investigate an object by looking at it and um, then build a a 3D model of the object fully by itself without any human help. And there were several interesting research questions, for example, how do you move the object in front of the camera? And the robot at some point, for instance, might have to put the object down and grab it from a different location because its own hand is occluding the object. So Mm -hmm. we came up with a technique that that can um, come up with a strategy for how to build complete models of objects. Mm-hmm. And then what do we use these three di- three-dimensional representations of objects for? Well, three-dimensional representation of objects can be very, very useful for the robot in the future, for example, if it wants to pick up the object later on or if it wants to see how a human picks up the object. So in that case, these 3D models can really help it to remember, for example, if you know, imagine you have a 3D model of a coffee mug and you know that you should pick it up at the handle, then having a 3D model and detecting the position of the coffee mug in the scene uh, might help the robot to more or less remember that, okay, here's the handle and this is where I should pick it up with. Mm-hmm. So these models can be really useful for, especially for manipulation tasks. For manipulation tasks? Would you store additional information about the object with that? So uh, if it's a coffee mug, I should pick it up here. But I suppose that's for our skin, the reason we're saving it if it's uh, we're not trying to touch the hot coffee mug is why we hold it by the handle. But perhaps it's easier to something that doesn't care about temperature to grab around the hole. That's, that's, a, that's an excellent point. The question is, ultimately, we would like to have additional information attached to these objects because 
3D shape itself might not be enough. So, for instance, with a coffee mug, you could imagine uh, what you brought up is an excellent, excellent example with, with the temperature. So, the robot, if the robot might want to hand a coffee mug to a person, then maybe it should pick it up not at the handle so that it can um, point the handle to the person to uh, grab it. So, um, it's actually very important for the robot to think about what humans want to do with these objects so that they can really help them with that. And that's what we call in robotics also often affordances, right? What are the things I can do with an object in the context of a certain task? Mm-hmm. What about, uh, so for deformable objects or objects that have some sort of odd physics about them, so say like a tennis ball tube that only has one tennis ball in it, thus if you tip it, the tennis ball would roll and it would uh, generate a bit of force when it hits the other end. It'd be a difficult object to pick up. How would this kind of characteristic to objects affect the physical model? That's a good point. So you could also imagine another example would be, for example, a keychain with multiple keys on them, right? It's it's still an open question, what are the right models for these? You could imagine, of course, you have a model, a 3D model for every key on it, and you really reason about how they move and all of that, but I'm not sure that might even be the the most appropriate representation. I don't think, for example, we humans, when we reason about these objects, really have even these kind of models that do that. So I think uh, we do reasoning in the world that's much more what we call intuitive physics-based, mm-hmm. and that's another research direction we're actually pushing into right now. Yes. Where, where the idea is to give robots a notion of intuitive physics, where the idea is, right now in robotics, we are relying a lot on let's say, very good 3D models of objects. And then, if, for instance, you know the mass of an object, you know the friction of the surface of the object, then you can plan ahead and say, how much force do I have to apply in order to pick it up mm-hmm. to compensate, for example, gravity and things like that. Um, but I think we humans have much more intuitive notions of these kind of things, right? Like well, how we adjust much, quickly. We adjust yeah, very quickly. Exactly, because we don't know exactly the mass of an object by just looking at it, right? Or we don't mm-hmm. know what will be the surface friction. We just have estimates for those things. And these estimates are not necessarily even don't necessarily exactly correspond to notions of friction or mass or gravity. So we are trying to see if we can use machine learning techniques to learn models that are closer to intuitive physics models, which means these are models that are learned from experiencing things in the world where a robot might look how objects move and from that then learn models for how objects move rather than just based on physics but more based on experience that it collects. Mm-hmm. But then, so from there, when you have these models, how do you encode some sort of semantic information? So what's going on in the scene, what the human's intentions are, these kind of things. I think that that is, um, then you could imagine if you can track single objects in a scene, then the next level is, as you say, is really important, is the semantics of a scene, which means, for example, what is the goal of a person, or what are, again, what are the affordances of objects and things like that. And a lot of that, on the one hand side, we can get by training machine learning techniques on labeled training data. So, for example, in computer vision, there's one uh, big um, effort, what's called the ImageNet Challenge, where we train uh, computers to recognize objects and images, which is one kind of semantic information and something like that. Of course, we can also leverage for robotics. Um, But we are also actually pursuing a direction where the notion is how can we map natural language 
when people give robots commands to a representation that is useful to the robot. And the problem is actually very similar to what the kind of systems like um, the, the CRE system does or the, the Amazon Echo device, where the idea is you say something to your cell phone or to your smart device or your smart home, and now your phone needs to do the correct action, which means this is uh, the problem of uh, using language or mapping language to some representation that a computer can use. And we have the same problem in robotics. When I want to tell my robot, okay, can you go to my office and bring me my laptop, the robot needs to know, okay, what do I mean by that task? Do I mean, okay, go to the office, which means that gives it a target location, uh, bring me my laptop, which means it should actually try to find the laptop and then come back and, back and bring it to me. So we need to have techniques that can really go from these commands to some action recognition for the robot. And uh, that whole area is what we also call um, symbol grounding or language grounding, which means we need to map these. The word apple, for example, is only useful to a robot if it can, if it can see an apple in the environment. And that is what we mean by grounding, which means match the word apple to a concept in the real world. And the concept in the real world would be the real apple that is on the table, for instance. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the end of today's episode. As always, just visit robohop.org for more background on anything you've heard today, as well as lots more content about robotics. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Vision with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.